This podcast may contain disturbing themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Our story starts with two sisters, whose attempt to communicate with the spirit of their dead mother led them to a path they wish they never took. Also, our story involves two fathers, one who almost had it all, and the other was trying so hard to make ends meet. Two separate families, at two separate times, all connected to a single evil that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. This is Episode 1, The Devil Behind the Walls. Everybody loves a good story, and once in a while, we are more drawn to the ones that, well, sounds too incredible, too bizarre, too scary, or too strange to be real. The kind that can only come from the imagination of a good storyteller, or someone's twisted mind, perhaps. But sometimes, what makes these unbelievable tales a much more compelling listen is when they are based on events that are actually true. This is the Podcast of Strange, and I'm Antonio, your storyteller. Before we begin, I would like to point out that the retelling of this particular tale may probably be the most accurate so far. However, As I dug deeper, the facts about this story still continue to change into many forms, that nailing down the actual events is as mysterious as our anti-hero. Fortunately, I had the privilege to talk to Joe Turner, an investigative journalist who has written an upcoming book about this. I will interview him at the end of this tale. Pepperell is a quiet rural town that's an hour away from Boston. Settlers came to this part of Massachusetts in 1720, and by the 1980s, the town's population grew to around 8,000 residents. Decades ago, I was fortunate enough to visit the Chester H. Waterus Bridge, one of the extremely rare covered bridges that was open to the motorists in the whole of the state. It has since been demolished and replaced with a newer one in 2008. Today, the town is regarded as a friendly and occasionally old-fashioned rural community. Crime is below the average in the surrounding areas and is considered a peaceful and safe town. Andrew Gustafson has just landed a big real estate deal that would mean big and exciting life changes for his family and their finances. He was so excited that Andy wanted to celebrate that very same day with his wife Priscilla. He was planning a dinner date later that evening. So he rang their house to ask Priscilla to get a sitter to look after their two children, Abigail and William. But the phone kept ringing and ringing and no one answered. Now let's go back to 1986, back to Pepperell. Frank Bowen's life 
went on to a trajectory he never saw coming or even imagined. Having recently lost his wife to cancer, Frank was thrown into single parenthood with his two daughters, a nine-year-old and a 15-year-old teenager left in his care. With a house and two daughters to support, Frank had to work late hours to make ends meet. And with their mother gone, the girls knew that they have to deal with a father who would not always be there for them. And this made them miss their mother even more. So it's no surprise that this shared grief strengthened the bonds between the sisters. Like most typical 15-year-olds, Tina and her friends would often talk about relationships, crushes and other stuff one would expect with kids their age. So it was not surprising that Tina entertained the idea of meeting boys. And sure enough, she began receiving phone calls from a boy named Danny. Tina did not know anyone called Danny at school, nor did she know a Danny in their neighborhood. So she was puzzled as to how he got her number. Apparently, according to Danny, a friend from Tina's school gave him her number, which really is not so unusual. Somehow, the two hit it off quite early, keeping regular talks over the phone for weeks. Remember, this was way before the cell phone and the internet, so their choices of communication was quite limited. Today, it's so easy to Google any person and checking their online profiles, social media, and other digital footprints, something we take for granted these days. Danny described himself as a charming, good-looking, tall, and athletic young man. He also said that his friends think of him as a jock, since he played well in football and also ran track. In addition, Danny bragged Tina that his friends see him as a very intelligent person, and that further added to Danny's mystique and charm to a naive Tina. Since Tina enjoyed talking to Danny over the past few weeks, she naturally agreed to go out on a date with him. The plan was that he would pick her up at her place and they would spend the evening at the local town fair. On the evening of the date, the Bowen's doorbell rang. Tina, who already got herself prepared for the evening, quickly ran to answer the door, expecting a tall, handsome young boy at their doorstep. Instead, the person she greeted was a greasy, unkempt, and dark-haired young man of average height and a pockmarked face ravaged by acne. Tina's first thoughts would have been that this was not Danny. Perhaps a pizza delivery guy who got the wrong address, or maybe someone who got lost wanting to ask for directions. But as soon as the boy spoke, Tina immediately recognized the voice, and was shocked to realize that this unremarkable and somewhat creepy-looking person was in fact the Danny whom she was talking to over the phone for weeks. The young teen probably felt sorry for him, or didn't have the heart nor the courage to reject him, humiliating him in the process. But whatever the reason may be, 
she eventually agreed to let Danny take her out to the fair. I guess Tina felt that she really had no choice at this point. And this is the 80s, so it really won't get any worse, now would it? Would it? And so, the two then left Tina's house and walked their way to the local town fair. It was during this uncomfortable and awkward date that Danny learned of Tina's struggle and grief of losing their mother to cancer. But what was even more awkward and equally disturbing was Danny's intense curiosity and interest about her mother's death. He kept pressing Tina for more details about the tragedy. For instance, he asked very distressing questions about the specifics of her mother's suffering leading to her death. Even worse, Danny asked how Tina felt at that very moment her mother died. Not really quite the conversation you'd expect on a first date. And after just over an hour, Tina desperately made excuses to cut the date short and immediately went home. Unsurprisingly, Tina refused Danny's further invitation for more dates after that. She made it clear to Danny that she wanted nothing to do with him anymore. Or, at the very least, going out together is no longer an option. We really won't know if it was because of the stress of the date or the continued trauma of not having their mother. That a few days later, the Bowen sisters thought about performing a seance to contact their deceased mom. Obviously, their dad would not be happy about that. So they decided to perform the rites while he was away for work. In their minds, they were not expecting anything to come off it. They really had nothing to lose. Perhaps, the girls saw it as a welcome, albeit risky, change in the current doldrums of their new lifestyle of being without their mom and an often absent father. And to make their little project fully dad-proof, they decided to hold a seance in the basement. Besides, it's just a bit of harmless fun. What's the worst that can happen? That evening, the sisters brought some candles and a Ouija board in preparation for the seance. In the basement, with candles lit, they held hands, sang songs, and said prayers. As they played around with the planchette, which is that little wooden pointer on the Ouija board, they continued with their singing with lit candles all around them. And after a few minutes, they heard and felt nothing. But moments later, they did hear their dad arriving from work. They abruptly put an end to their ritual and quickly ran up to their rooms. And that was the end of it, or so they thought because on that very same evening, it seemed that their seance has conjured something unexpected, something haunting.
That evening, while fast asleep on their beds, the girls awoke from a rhythmic tapping and noise that sounded like it was coming from their bedroom walls. Then the pipes started to make banging sounds. Curiously enough, the noise did not wake their father. At first, they were both terrified and excited at the thought that their seance may have actually worked and that the spirit of their mother is trying to communicate with them. With their exhausted father still asleep, the girls then asked some questions and the walls would reply with a series of knocks and other sounds. I tried to find out as to what those exchanges were all about, the questions asked, and how the tappings responded to those questions. Unfortunately, there were no further available information regarding this. But this seemingly supernatural exchange would continue for several more nights, until it became so regular that it was clearly difficult for the girls to get a decent night's sleep. Side note, severe lack of sleep can lead to hallucinations such as hearing voices or seeing strange apparitions. While this does not seem to be the case according to all available sources, I would not rule out such a possibility. That said, the lack of sleep was evidently not severe, since there was no noticeable issues reported whenever the girls were at school. Oddly enough, these strange episodes would only occur when the girls were either alone or during the nights when their exhausted father was fast asleep. But the rapping and strange noises on the wall were not the only things that was occurring since the seance. Objects began to disappear, only to reappear somewhere else in the house. There was even a report that they would find something that looked like urine in the bathtub. Strange. On one occasion, some of the missing objects were found neatly arranged on top of their kitchen counter, only to be scattered all over the floor the very next day. It was by then that they told their dad about these occurrences, minus the seance, of course. But Frank dismissed this as a product of their imagination. And really, I can't blame him. It was probably the last thing their overworked father wanted to worry about. Since it was late autumn, Frank figured that all that noise are coming from the creaking wooden parts of the house as the days got colder towards winter. But the girls insisted to the contrary, telling him that it wasn't their imagination or the weather. The girls believed that they inadvertently invited a troublesome entity from the spirit world, and that's what's haunting them. Frank rebuked the girls, ordering them to end this nonsense and wanting nothing more of it. But then, one evening, the usual knocking and tappings began like it always did. 
it was still some time before their father, Frank, would be home from work. Only this time, it was different. Because this time, the sounds seemed to be coming from the basement, the very place where they held the seance. And this frightened and troubled the girls that they decided to investigate. Armed with a kitchen knife, Tina held it trembling as she went down the basement stairs with little Karen right behind her to see what... Wait, 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 wait. This sounds like a bad horror movie trope. Who would in their right minds go down a scary basement, possibly risking their lives, instead of running up to the safety of their rooms and hide under the sheets until sunrise? That's what I would do. I'm just someone with a bit more common sense. Now, where were we? Ah. The basement. To their horror, as the two reached the basement floor, there, on the wall, was a message written in blood red. I'm in your room. Come and find me. Okay, so much for my run back to your room and hide under the sheets argument. Upon reading the message, panic and fright washed over the girls as they ran back upstairs and out of the house. The girls took refuge to a neighbor's home. There, they stayed until their father returned from work later that evening. When an irritated Frank tried to investigate, there was no such message in the basement. Frank was convinced that the girls were emotionally struggling with the stresses of their circumstances, and they imagined all this just to gain his attention. It was at this point that he suggested that Tina and Karen go see a counselor. Frank was hoping that this would help the girls cope with their grief and put an end to this supernatural nonsense. After the basement wall incident, things seemed to quiet down a bit. But just a couple of weeks later, in January of 1987, the knockings and the rappings on the walls started again. Like before, these occurrences happened whenever their father was away for work. But this time, the knockings came from Tina's bedroom. When they entered her room, they were greeted with another blood-red message written on the wall. It read... I'm back. Find me if you can. According to one newspaper source, the terrified girls escaped through the bedroom window rather than run further inside their house to the front door. The girls then sought refuge with the same neighbor, frightened and trembling. Once again, they phoned their dad, and again, Frank dismissed it and said that he was too busy to waste his time with their nonsense. However, their neighbor has had enough, seeing how genuinely distressed and frightened the girls were. So the neighbor insisted that Frank should come home and investigate again. That early evening, a grumbling Frank left work early and headed home. The girls were still at the neighbor's house when Frank arrived. 
upon entering their home, he noticed that the place was in a much more disarrayed state than what the girls have described on the phone. A frustrated Frank then went up the stairs leading to Tina's room, expecting to see the message that was supposed to be written on the wall. And true enough, he saw the message written in what looked like blood, but he did not expect that there was another one written close to the first one, and it read, Marry me. Marry me? The message does not make any sense, especially when it was supposed to be coming from his dead wife. Anger and frustration turned into confusion as to what it all meant. Was it a message for Tina? Surely that would mean that this is not from their mother. Or was it a message for him? But even before he could process more of what was going on, the corner of his eye caught a glimpse of a very disturbing sight at the far edge of the room. There stood a figure with a disturbingly distorted and discolored face, caked in makeup with blonde hair and wearing a dress that was unmistakably from his dead wife. The sight was so unnatural and ghastly that he almost missed the fact that this ghoulish figure had a hatchet on one hand. The figure launched and there was a short scuffle as the two tried to grab control of the small axe. But somehow, the intruder was able to escape and ran to the basement. Momentarily shaken, Frank thought about chasing his attacker, but did the right thing and ran out of the house and told the neighbors to call 911. When the police came shortly that evening, everyone was baffled as to who or what or even where the intruder disappeared into. The cops searched inside the house and found no sign of anyone else. Even the one patrolling the area found nothing suspicious. There was no trace of this strange woman. It's as if she vanished into thin air. But later that evening, while continuing their search around the house, an officer noticed a gap in one corner of the basement that led to a narrow passage. With flashlights and guns drawn, it did not take long for the officers to find someone curled up, hiding inside the crawl space. That someone would be no other than the boy, Danny. The same creepy kid that Tina dated at the fair and decided never to see again. Danny was the intruder disguised as their dead mom all along, and hiding between the walls would explain how he disappeared so quickly. The crawl space where police have found Danny led to different parts of the Bowen's home where he can move around without being noticed. According to some later reports, this crawl space also connects to other passageways between the walls, where it was reported that Daniel have added peepholes dotted all over the place.
This meant that Danny can observe Tina and Karen from almost any room they were in. In addition, it seemed that he was living at the Bowens' house for quite some time, and in some reports, for as long as over two months. Found inside the crawl space were several items including food wrappings, some articles of clothing, a flashlight, and a sleeping bag. Some sources also mentioned that the girl's undergarments were among the items in his possession. In the end, Frank realized that the haunts the girls were experiencing turned out to be true. But it wasn't the spirit of his dead wife. Unknown to the Bowen family, the true horror was still yet to come. In reality, the writings on the walls was actually ketchup. Okay, I admit it. I should have mentioned the ketchup earlier, but I wanted to build a drama, so there. Danny was, of course, the one who did all the tappings on the walls. He also moved things around the house to make it look like a haunting. Remember Danny's claim that he got hold of Tina's phone number from one of her school friends? Of course, that was a lie. Danny never really had regular friends, let alone know someone who knew Tina's personal information, such as her phone number. It's safe to assume that Danny found her landline number when he broke into their house a few months ago. If you think about it, what else did Daniel find? And yes, the scary woman was Danny, wearing cake makeup and the blonde wig was from their mother, who probably wore it when she was being treated with chemo. Topping up the charade was him wearing the dress, pretending to be the spirit of their dead mom. Imagine how Danny must have looked like when Frank saw him. Definitely the stuff of nightmares. And don't forget what Danny left in the bathtub. But the real question is, what was Danny planning? Was it to scare the sisters with this twisted image of their mother? And then what? What did he hope to accomplish after he springs this macabre surprise? And what's really worrying is this. What did he intend to do with the hatchet? But like I said before, the real horror is yet to come. Daniel was born on May 16, 1970, in Townsend, Massachusetts. Townsend is just next to Pepperell, a mere 11-minute drive, Pepperell being where the Bowens lived. He lived with his mother, Elaine, and his stepfather. He had two brothers, Stephen and Matthew. Daniel had a miserable childhood. He was abused by his father, 
and later by his stepfather. Sadly, according to many sources, this included physical, psychological, and sexual forms of abuse. It's also been reported that Daniel had several run-ins with the law at a very early age. And because he was a minor at the time, I can find very little detail since they were kept as confidential records. Now keep that in mind. It's going to be important later when it comes to many versions of this story, as I will explain later. He struggled at school, both socially and academically, and his childhood peers described him as creepy, smelly, unkempt, and weird. Like myself, Daniel is dyslexic, which is not a disorder, but is seen as a condition where people learn to comprehend things differently. I'm not saying that having dyslexia can lead to any sort of antisocial behavior, but having this condition made it more difficult for Danny to follow his lessons and made him more isolated from his peers when you consider that he already has a myriad of other psychological issues. When he was in his early teens, Danny was recommended by the school to see a psychiatrist. He was diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder, more commonly known as ADHD. Common symptoms of ADHD can include a short attention span, constant fidgeting, and impulsiveness. People with this disorder would always act, sometimes recklessly, without thinking of the consequences. Also, a person with ADHD may not recognize the dangers and the troubles their actions may cause. Fortunately, people with the disorder can be diagnosed at an early age, but if left untreated, it could lead to severe antisocial behavior, and by the time they reach their teens, can even be more damaging, especially if they grew up in an abusive family environment. Sadly, for Daniel, seeing a psychiatrist only made his mental and social issues worse, as this very same psychiatrist allegedly sexually abused Danny and treated him poorly during their sessions. So it's no surprise that things got worse for Daniel mentally after attending those sessions that was supposed to help him. These series of unfortunate and troubling circumstances, in addition to his existing mental issues, are what most likely led LaPlante to a life of crime at an early age. And one of them being the crime of breaking into other people's homes. Before he broke into the Bowens' house, Daniel was already a compulsive housebreaker and burgled houses on a regular basis around the nearby towns. Very little is known as to how many homes he broke into. Again, since he was a minor when these crimes were committed, there was no public available records on this. It has been speculated that he started in this enterprise at a very young age of 14, perhaps maybe even as young as 13. Following his arrest from the invasion of the Bowen house, Daniel was scheduled to be in court sometime that year. 
Since Daniel was 16 at the time, he was placed in a juvenile detention facility until a court date is finalized. In October 1987, it was decided that Daniel's case would be transferred from juvenile court to being tried as an adult. This is significant because since he will be tried in an adult court, it meant that he can post bail. Was he tried as a juvenile instead of as an adult, he would have remained at the detention facility at the mercy of the state. This meant that his release would be very dependent on whether or not they deem him as a continued risk or threat to himself or to others. According to one newspaper article, Elaine, Daniel's mom, was able to remortgage their home for the $10,000 bail. The neighbors were so disturbed when they saw him back on the streets that it even forced the Bowens to move out of their house to an undisclosed hotel in fear of Danny's possible retaliation. He was still expected to be at his hearing on December 11 that same year, just two months away. Apparently, having spent 10 months in a juvenile facility did not curb his nefarious ways. We don't know the level of counseling he received during his stay, but if such counseling was offered or given to Daniel, it helped him very little, if any at all, because shortly after his release, he broke and burgled again into houses the following November. In fact, at one house, he stole two handguns, and in one of the houses he broke into, was the home of the Gustafsons, an act that changed the course of this story to a much darker and sinister path. The 1st of December, 1987. Andrew Gustafson tried phoning his wife, Priscilla, who he knew was at their house that afternoon. The Gustafsons, 34-year-old Andrew and 33-year-old Priscilla, had two kids, Abigail, who was seven, and five-year-old William. She was also pregnant with their third child. Priscilla was a nursery school teacher and Andrew was a lawyer at a law firm in Townsend. On that cold morning of the 1st of December, Andrew landed a big real estate deal and decided to celebrate with his wife that evening. He tried calling her, but his calls went to their answering machine. When he got home early that evening, Andrew was greeted with an eerily silent house, even though Priscilla's car was parked outside. This was unusual, especially with the house lights still out after sunset, and none of the usual ruckus of his two kids who always waited for him to come home. Upon entering the house, he called out to them, 
only to be met with more uncomfortable silence. Andrew then went up to their bedroom, and there, barely illuminated by the outside streetlights, was the lifeless body of his wife, face down, with a blood-soaked pillow on top of her head. By the position of her body and her state of undress, it was apparent that she was sexually assaulted and received a mortal wound to her head. At this horrendous and macabre discovery, Andrew, overwhelmed and almost paralyzed with despair, called the police. He did not try to look for little Abigail and William, as he did not want to witness the inevitable horror of seeing them dead. When the police came, they found Priscilla shot twice in the head at point-blank range. Abigail and William were later found in two separate bathrooms where their bodies lay. Their autopsy later confirmed that they died by drowning in separate bathtubs. The police found several pieces of evidence, including footprints with sole patterns outside the window. They also found a can of beer that was open but left untouched. That, and the way the inside of the house was broken into, with stuff strewn about, matches a familiar MO that's so similar to Daniel LaPlante's latest burgling right after he posted bail. It was reported that even before they called out for the sniffer dogs, detectives already knew that LaPlante would be among their list of suspects. At the very least, he definitely was a person of interest. And his house, being so close to the Gustafsons, made the suspicion against Daniel even stronger. So, when sniffer dogs were used, they led the police near the house where Daniel stayed with his mother and stepfather, further strengthening their suspicions. The day after the murders, two state troopers went looking for Daniel and found him at the public library. When questioned, he gave an alibi that he was at home with his brother-in-law when the murders took place. As more evidence were collected, and not satisfied with the initial talk, the two state troopers then went to Daniel's house for a second interview. But as they approached Daniel, who saw the troopers coming from the porch where he sat, he then ran into the dense woods behind his house, and thus began the massive manhunt for Daniel LaPlante. Up to 50 officers with helicopter resources were involved in the search for the suspect. At this point, and considering the brutality of the crime, LaPlante was considered armed and dangerous. And on the 3rd of December, two days after the murders, with nothing to lose, Daniel fled to the Pepperell area and was able to steal a gun in one of his further break-ins. He then fled to the house of Pamela McKella and at gunpoint ordered her to drive her van to Fitchburg, a city 30 minutes away. Fortunately, 
Pamela was able to escape when she had the chance to jump out of her vehicle when Daniel was momentarily distracted. Although shaken, she was unhurt. Daniel did not give chase and instead continued driving away. She was able to call the police to report that Daniel was on the run with Pamela's Volkswagen van. Headed in a different direction, to Ayer, Massachusetts, he ditched the van and ran on foot. Hiding inside a dumpster at a nearby lumberyard, he was tracked down and arrested without incident at around 6.30 that evening. At age 18, Daniel's murder trial began in October of 1988, where he was tried as an adult. He underwent numerous psychiatric evaluations and was deemed mentally fit to stand trial. Daniel was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder and was given three life sentences. In March 2017, at the age of 42, LaPlante's lawyers asked for a reduction to his sentence, and that request was denied. Another appeal was requested in 2019. However, that too was denied. If he won't win any future appeals, Daniel LaPlante won't be eligible for parole until 2032. By then, he will be 62. Andrew Gustafson, whose entire family Daniel LaPlante killed in cold blood, painfully reclaimed his life and remarried. His new wife, Carol, was the driving force behind his will to move forward from this horrifying tragedy. In 2014, at 60 years, he died from a brain tumor and allegedly said on his deathbed about Daniel, Don't ever let him out. He should rot in prison. Andrew wore two wedding rings, one for Priscilla another for Carol. Carol agreed he'd keep wearing the ring of his dead wife. And the Bowen sisters? I can't find any further details beyond what has happened after their dreadful encounters with LaPlante. And considering this whole nightmare... I think this is a good thing. But one thing is for certain. Tina and Karen Bowen did not conjure the soul of their dead mother from that seance. Neither did they unwittingly summon a wayward, troublesome spirit. They thought they encountered a real ghost. But in reality, what they did face is a true monster. If you lived in Massachusetts during the mid-80s, you know the name Daniel LaPlante. 
Daniel LaPlante murdered a pregnant mother and her two children. But before he did that, he tried to murder my extended family, my uncle Frank Bowen, my cousin Tina Bowen, my cousin Karen Bowen, and Tina's friend Kathy Knapp. Um, Daniel was obsessed with my cousin Tina, and um, it was a disaster. I remember the Pepperell Police Department calling my dad. We lived in Hanover, Massachusetts at the time. Uh, my uncle and his family had to go in hiding. Um, Daniel LaPlante was living in the walls of my extended family's house. He dressed up in my cousin's clothes. They are lucky to be alive. That was Jonathan Bowen, the nephew of Frank Bowen, briefly sharing his thoughts on Daniel LaPlante's invasion of the Bowen house and, of course, the aftermath. There's a word to describe Danny's uninvited residence at the Bowen's house. It's called frogging, spelt with a P-H instead of an F. According to the site finty.com, frogging is the act of a person secretly living in another person's home. The term is thought to have originated from the metaphorical idea of people or frogs leaping from home to home. In many sources, the Bowen's house crawlspace connects to a passageway or perhaps passageways that gave Daniel access between walls to certain rooms and reportedly he discreetly added some peepholes on some of those walls. This just wasn't always the case, and there are some subtle differences. As I spoke with Joe Turner, who is quite arguably the leading expert of all things LaPlante, a British author, he investigated Daniel's case extensively for his upcoming book titled The Boy in the Walls. Joe is also working on a series of true crime projects that will be released sometime in the near future. By the way, I deliberately limited the scope of this interview. I did not want him to reveal any spoilers about the other details that wasn't included in this episode. I'd rather find out about it when his book is released, and I will definitely be among the first to read it. In almost all of the other podcasts, the names of the sisters were different. Instead of uh, Tina and Karen Bowen, uh, their names were Annie and Jessica Andrews. Frank Bowen was named Brian Andrews. How the names were changed is still a puzzle. And if you have any theories, you can email me. Check my show notes for contact details. And that's not all that's changed. Remember Jonathan Bowen's soundbite? He mentioned that Daniel was wearing Tina's clothes. But in many of the other YouTube videos and podcasts, Daniel was wearing their mother's wedding dress. While Daniel also hid behind a closet in Tina's room, some newspapers and police reports indicated that he was found in a narrow space at the corner of the Bowen's basement. And that's the snippet of information I used in this episode. Hopefully, much of the mysteries and misinformations will be cleared in Joe's upcoming book. Now on to the interview. 
Oh, um, first, I would like to apologize in advance for the Zoom audio quality. As a first-time podcaster, I didn't realize that I should have asked Joe to use a headset instead of just talking to the webcam's microphone. I promise to do better, and I look forward to interviewing him again for more of his exciting cases coming up. Now, I asked Joe what drew him to the Daniel LaPlante case, and what made him decide to write a book about it. Well, I mean, I remember, first remember reading about the LaPlante case probably 20 years ago now. I mean, the early 2000s, I remember reading. There wasn't as much information about it then as there was now, so we were only limited to like the, the basics information of the case. Um, and, and I've always had that, that information in the back of my mind. Um, and it's funny because if you spend enough time in the journalism world, you can always tell when something is a lie. When there's a statement made, you can always tell if it's true or not by the way it's worded, so the language used, you know, the inflections in there, stuff like that. And he kept reading about this LaPlante case, and he always said he lived in the walls of these girls' home. Now, to me, that's not something you can just say and leave, you know? You have to kind of quite as, you know, a remarkable revelation. People don't live in the walls of houses. It doesn't happen. It's not something that's, you know, considered to be real. So I kept reading that line, and I was like, well, some, somewhere should have a little bit more information on this because it's so bizarre. You know, it's the kind of thing that if a journalist got hold of that piece of information, they should walk. They should track down the people involved. They should want to reveal more about it. And that was the thing that prompted me to, to want to look into it. And now this was around uh, 2017, and I wrote the article that most people use as the main source now. And even back then, I was relying on online sources um, that didn't have, you know, the full details, kind of piecing things together from little bits of information here and there. There was no definitive source, so I tried to put together a definitive source. Um, and I wrote this article. I had no intention of going any further with it. I just did this 2,000-word like, piece, put it on this website that I worked for, uh, left the art, sent the article out. I thought that would be the end. And then, steadily over the next few months, kept getting emails of people. Oh, I knew Daniel when he was a kid. Oh, I, um, you know, I owned one of the shops that he once burgled. Oh, I was the police officer that arrested Daniel. Oh, I was one of his victims, and I just got this whole flurry of information from people. Um, and the first person to really reach out to me was um, the arresting the officer that. Are, eventually arrested Danny when he was on the, on the run. And he gave me like, because he knew the full story and he had been locked away in his head for 35 years, but he revealed little bits to me. And it kind of, it suggested that every part of the story was either not told in full or embellished a little. And the more I pieced it together, the more I realized that there was a lot more than what was reported. So after he reached out to me, yeah, like I say, there was, I've was just spoken to 50, 60 people who knew Dan as a kid or had some kind of interaction with him or his victims or what. Uh, they just kept coming. Some, somehow the, uh, that article made its way to the people of uh, Townsend and Pepperell, Massachusetts, where the whole thing happened. And, and of course, because it's a small town community, everyone's got some kind of, you know, link to the person involved, you know? You know, in small towns, everyone's connected to each other. 
Yeah, so I spoke to like everyone, the law enforcement, the victims, the friends of Danny's family, you know, and everyone had a different version of events than what was reported. And they want to spoke to these people individually. They all thought that it was only their component of the story that was wrong or embellished. But it turns out everyone had a, a you know, it was different in some way. Everyone didn't know, but everyone else's was different. So it was, it was very, very weird. And I started putting it together. And there's, like, not that the events were different than what was reported, but there was so much more than what was reported. And what wasn't reported was sometimes more interesting than what was. And this case is pretty interesting as it is. And that's how I kind of got sucked into the whole thing. I mean, when I first started researching, I had no intention of doing a book on it or anything like that. Um, but with all the information I had, I, remember I, I was going to put a piece together for my website with all the all the truth on there. And that piece alone was like 30,000 words, about half of a book. So I thought I might as well do a little bit more digging. And, then that, and that's how it all started. Pepperell is such a typical and peaceful town. It's quite a wonder how Danny could slip unnoticed with his early crimes. And there's this huge amount of different accounts of his story from different people and sources. You know, the ones close to the events that happened there. Um, did the town of Pepperell, and by extension, Townsend, play a relevant component to what Daniel has become in the stories that later came, came out after him? Well, that's... I mean, it's kind of relevant because the, you know someone's upbringing will affect their their mindset, their outlook, you know. So if this case hadn't have happened in a small town like Pepperell and Townsend, we might not have had the information that I have today. Because if it happened in a big city, people don't know each other, you know, they're not the names, they're just strangers, just faces. People wouldn't have these matches to people. So I might not have got all the details that I've got today if it happened elsewhere. So I think the environment is a very important factor in why this case is, you know, will. One reason why it's so secretive, and one reason why everyone's got a kind of link to it. Everyone in the town sort of knows the name, everyone's familiar with it. So if that was a big city, it wouldn't be the case. So I think that's quite, uh, that's quite an important component of it. There are so many inconsistencies as to where the police have found Danny hidden in the Bowen house. I used the one illustrated police report where he was found hiding somewhere in the basement. In other YouTube and podcasts about him, they either found him hiding beside or behind a passageway behind a washing machine or an access to the wall behind a cupboard in Tina's room. In addition, I did read many accounts that Danny also made peepholes on the walls and uh, so that he can see the girls and what they were doing around each room of the house. And how was he able to go undetected for a good couple of months? Care to share what you've found in your own investigation about this? It was in the basement, um, which also doubled as like a bedroom. It was a huge um, house-wide basement. There were kind of kitchen utilities in there and kind of the living room area. And Tina's bedroom was also there. It was one kind of room. And the area where Danny was getting into um, it was a there was a false wall. It's like um, it's hard to explain. Imagine the corner of a wall, and then um, there was a false wall, a partition against that wall to create a kind of triangle shape. So you've got the two walls there, and then a partition against it, a triangular shape. Danny was able to pull this partition aside to create a gap of about 
one office that says about six inches, the other office says about eight inches, so somewhere in that region. All this partition, so get in there, which was where the plumbing was for the, the kitchen uh, and bathroom utilities in the back. He was able to hide in there. You know, of course, a lot of the stories say that he was in the walls, and I guess this could technically be the walls, but he confined most of his activities from in this little section. He didn't move between... But he, he sometimes did come out and then go into different rooms and kind of terrorise the girls that way. But most of the times he, he was in two locations. There was just a normal cupboard that he used to go in, and there was this little false wall that he spent most of his time in, because no one, no human would be able to get in there other than Dan. Dan was a very flexible, very malleable kind of kid, quite stocky, he could still get in there. The officers are still, to this day, dumbfounded as to how he managed to do it, and how he managed to do it so stealthily, because it's the kind of thing that would, you'd think would make noise, you know, like slipping in between a very small crack. Sounds like a rigorous activity, but he did it regularly for a long time, and he probably to the tune of around eight, eight months or so, eight months to a year, he was probably in, in that house. That's who he used to get into his hiding place. To get into the house itself, he just walked in the door. It's a very anticlimactic explanation. And he knocked out some of the um, you know, the plug sockets in the wall. He's hammered out the plug sockets so that he could keep an eye on, on Tina through the um, through the hole. He did that in a few rooms. And there's some evidence that he did walk through the house regularly and kind of go upstairs and keep an eye on the girls that way. There's a lot of, a lot of other things like um, how long was he there for? Did he stay overnight? How did he sustain himself? What did he do while he was in there? All kinds of questions like that. And then, yeah, I mean, those are the natural questions that come when you say someone's been living in your house for, you know, close to a year. Of all the strange true crime stories that I have come across, LaPlante's case is definitely one, the only one with so many versions and inaccuracies that has the hallmarks of turning into some Hollywood-caliber urban tales somewhere in the online future. Um, any thoughts? Exactly why there's so much misinformation about this portion of the case. No concrete reason, but we can kind of speculate on a few things. The first sign is, um, say, I've got around 200 newspaper articles from 1986 and um, that all mention various things that LaPlante was involved in. And there's probably around three mentions of the Bowen incident. Um, and because they were all minors at the time, they couldn't really have their details put in the paper. Like there were three girls involved. One was 16, one was 15, one was nine. And Dan himself was only 30, 16. So they couldn't print anything. You know, they had to keep the names anonymous. Now, weirdly, they didn't keep the names anonymous. They just didn't report on it at all. There's very, very little information about this. The only way this came out was when a year after when he murdered the Gustafsons. That was when the details of what happened a year before in the, with the Bowen incident, that's when the details of that came out. Until then, no one really knew about it. Um, and it's weird because like, true crime fans, people who research this case, the first thing they will be drawn to is the stalking side of things. But a lot of people in Townsend and Pepperell weren't privy to this kind of this information. They didn't know anything about it. All they know is that Danny murdered a two children and two children a year later. Oh, he was talking to LaPlante's sister probably about six months ago. She had no idea 
that Danny had stalked Bowens and lived in their house. Even 35 years on, she still didn't know about it. I don't know how how you don't know that, especially because you're so close to it. But even to this day, she didn't know. And I, I had to be the one to tell her. And she was like, oh, that's weird. My brother was caught doing that. Oh, uh, so that was quite surreal. Um, but how it's morphed into some kind of weird folklore story is because there was so little information about it, I think it evolved from word of mouth. Now, I believe that how it first started, the journalists contacted the police. And at the time, there were about a bunch of 10 plus police officers that probably sped the story back to the journalists. And by this point, it would have been a year afterwards because they couldn't talk about it to anyone because of the mine, because they were all minors. So when Danny killed the Gustafsons, that was when the police started to reveal the details of what happened a year before. And because it had been a year in the making, some of the police officers had distorted the events, you know, there'd been um, miscommunication or people had... A good example is the first um, chapter of my book, there's two newspaper articles from 1987 and they both say the same incident but completely different things. Like one says Dan was dressed as a ninja and he had hatches. Another one says he was wearing makeup and a wedding dress. And it's like the same newspaper from the, the same, same, uh, same week, two different newspapers, completely different. How that happened, I can only assume it's due to word of mouth from the people that were there because the journalists wouldn't be able to access Danny's files. Like I still can't access his juvenile files today. So I doubt they could either. So the only <laughs> the only conclusion I've come to is that the officers just either forgot what had happened when they told the journalists, or they just made it up. One of, one of the two. And weirdly, there's also no mention of the Andrews name until like, the last decade. So I don't know where the name Andrews came from. I'm guessing that a, a blogger or something, like when True Crime first started getting popular around 2008, 2009, came up with a name to shield our identities and he just stuck ever since that's that's very possible that it could happen that's the only way i can think of that these andrews names came because even in the articles that do mention the bowens from 87 their real names are in there so i don't know where it came from the andrews I, i've been guilty before i mean um when i first started writing true crime like 10 12 years ago i wrote something about a famous case in germany and i added a little twist that was not true i just added a little flourish and to this day, when people copy that case, that flourishes in there. And it all came from my juvenile brain. So I apologize. Case, but it's that's how easy it's done. But of course, sometimes you have to speculate to make the links between events. And that's where, you know, the misinformation comes from. Because when Danny was found in his little hiding place, there was a pile of clothes underneath him. And some of these clothes were taken from the, like he used them as padding as a bed. And there was some of these clothes taken from the Bowens uh, cupboards and some of it was the clothes of their dead mom. There wasn't a wedding dress there, but I'm guessing some over-imaginative researchers thought, hmm, what, can't, what could we use here? What could really make this story pop? Oh, I don't know, a wedding dress. Maybe that was in the closet. Oh, and then, oh, he was wearing the wedding dress and he just kind of snowballed into just nonsense. So th that's the seed that I can imagine where that came from. The, the, the officers I spoke to that were there, they... There's, there's two there's two main ones, it's Tom and Steve, and they they have vivid memories of the events, but their vivid memories differ. So 
you know, they were both there at the same time and they're both convinced that their version is true. They've got little discrepancies, like uh, one says that Danny was behind a toilet, the other says Danny was behind a, a washing machine. The other day, different ideas of the layouts of the room and stuff like that. But of course, it's been 35 years, so I can't remember anything that happened 35 years ago, so I don't expect them to either. Yeah. So, how is Danny doing at the moment in prison after all these years? There are so many stories where criminals have become tech-savvy, despite being incarcerated way before the internet. Some of these people, I believe, have gained quite a uh, notoriety by writing in blogs, tweets, and some even have their own YouTube channels. Uh, it's a great question. Danny is very proficient with technology. I mean, he's obtained a degree while he's been inside, and he often helps other inmates with their legal issues. So he's kind of a, I'm sure you've seen the Shawshank Redemption. He's kind of like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption. He helps everyone else. And he, he's a very intelligent individual. Um, but of course, this intelligence was misplaced when he was a, was a youngster. Um, so he, I know he's capable with technology and email and stuff like that. But of course, he doesn't do anything with it. He keeps himself to himself. <sighs> I don't know whether he's an introverted type. I mean, he, he looks introverted type from what I've seen and from what his mom has said to me. But that goes against everything that his childhood friends said to him when he was kind of a, an extra, extroverted, outgoing, bullying kind of type. So it's quite strange that he's changed so significantly. But, you know, with that said, he has been in prison for his entire adult, adult life. So that's going to do something quite severe to someone's, you know, mental outlook. He's probably not going to be the same person he was 35 years ago. Uh, so I can only assume it's by design that he doesn't advertise himself. Uh, and I know a lot of people that have wrote to him and stuff like that, and he's never responded to any mail or anything. He's never spoken to anyone about it. Um, the only person he speaks to on a regular basis that, does, that isn't in prison, that isn't... Uh, well, the only person to speak to is his mom. She visits him every week, and I've spoken to his mom about him, and... She says he's never talked about the case in 35 years. They go and they meet and they talk about what he's been doing in prison, but he's never mentioned what he'd done or he's explained why he did it in the, the court transcripts. But he was 18 at the time, so he was probably not going to tell the truth. He was trying to look, trying to save his own ass. So he was trying to come off as innocent as possible. Uh, but in, yeah, part of he's never really explained why he did it and. I don't think he knows what he did. He's just a sociopathic, juvenile offender, really. And he was an opportunistic offender. I mean, when he killed that family, he was burglarizing the house. They hadn't have been in, they wouldn't have died. He had no, he probably didn't go there with the intention of murdering them. I, I don't think so. And just as he was leaving, that was when the young girl Abigail came home. Um, that was an opportunistic murder because he'd already killed the other two he thought I need to clear up loose ends I can't have no one knowing what I did so he killed her as well so I suggest he's a very opportunistic offender he's not sure if he did it out of any kind of sexual gratification although he may have I mean he did take a gun to the house with him where suggested he was just um, for self-defense or whether he went there with the intention of killing the, killing the Gustafsons it's impossible to say, and he's never explained whether his true reasoning or, you know, a lot of people in his prison who I've spoken to, I've spoken to some of his, one of his old cellmates who said that he was 
intelligent guy, well-spoken, knew his stuff, but he didn't try to converse with the outside world. He was not happy with his life, but he's accepted his faith by the sense of it. Lately, you have been very busy on many projects. Can you tell us more on what you have in store in the future for us? Uh, well, the, the, the biggest project I'm working on at the moment is... Well, I can't say too much about it, but I'm working along with a, a, a TV crew, so that might give you some hints as to what we're doing in the future. But there's a little twist. It's not just going to be about Dan, because the town that Dan lived in was murder central. There was a lot of strange things that went on in Townsend and Pepperell and Fitchburg in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So that town is kind of like a real-life horror story. And uh, I tell you that Dan lived on Elm Street. That was the name of his street. He wasn't the only monster on Elm Street, funnily enough. There was a few others as well. And then when you combine it all together, you kind of wonder what was in the water in that town. What? Danny's not the only monster in the Pepperell area? Other real-life horror stories? More real-life nightmares on Elm Street? Sorry, um, just can't help myself. So that's something we're, we're working on at the moment. That's quite, that's quite exciting. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. I'll, we read the, uh, the, the idea the other day, and it's, it's really good. It's the kind of thing that if you saw it on a Netflix thing, you'd be straight on there. It looks, it's so insane. The, the twists and turns in these stories are unbelievable. And of course, Dan's a crucial part of it as well, because there are other members, members of Dan's family that weren't as a story that were just as criminal and homicidal as he's so that's something else to keep in mind yeah and as well as that i've actually got three books coming out in the next few months <laughs> got three of them um yeah well, yeah should be should be four working on another one at the moment um these the, the first book is about my interactions with real life serial killers that i've met over the years i've met four or five and i've kind of put my experiences with them into into book form second one is um an unsolved mysteries book about five cases that really um that really appeal to kind of obscure cases you know not like massive you know nothing like the zodiac and jack the ripper or anything like that kind of obscure true crime cases that have been unsolved and they're all serial cases they've all got multiple victims it's all very um very in-depth i prefer to do kind of dive into these the possibilities and the theories and the circumstances and trying to uncover some kind of truth at the end of them. And then my third one is a book on the serial killers that, or unsolved crimes that took place on the highways around the uh, highways around the United States. There's you now the trucking industry is the backbone of, of serial killings. So it's someone needs to talk about how these two worlds collide, you know. It's good fun. Lots of unsolved murders taking place on highways because, you know, the roads, they, they offer anonymity. You can go for truckers, go from one town to the next, you know, in a complete transit lifestyle. It lends itself perfectly to the act of multiple homicides. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my third one. And that's pretty much it. And then hopefully, Boy in the Walls should be out pretty soon. Had some delays because, uh, like I mentioned, we've had to put it back because we want to coincide with something else we're working on. That's why it's been, uh, been pushed back for several months. And that's the end of my interview with true crime investigative journalist, Joe Turner. <laughs>
I look forward to Joe's exciting and upcoming books and shows. And stay tuned, as I will keep you updated once they are released. This Halloween is when kids look forward to wearing costumes and going around the neighborhood for spooky and yummy treats. It's when creative homeowners get a chance to show how good, or bad, they are in showing off their most haunted front yard creations. It's when pranksters lurk in dark corners, waiting for their next unsuspecting victim to come close and get the best scare of the night. And it's when things can go horribly wrong, horribly fast. Coming next week on the podcast of Strange. If you'd like to support my podcast and help me improve and produce more free-to-listen episodes, simply follow and subscribe to the podcast of Strange wherever you listen to podcasts. By also giving me a five-star rating and review, you help greatly in spreading the word about this podcast, and for that you have my deepest thanks. I will soon include a midweek episode called The Podcast of Strangers, where I will read your own strange experiences and may also invite you for an interview as well. If you have any suggestions on any strange but true events that you wish me to include and do a deep dive in, or want to share your own strange experiences, you can email us at thepodcastofstrange at gmail.com. And again, thank you so much for listening.